You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Let's go to Joshua 8, starting in verse 30. We'll read that through the rest of the chapter, just five verses. Joshua 8, starting in verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on the opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that was written in the book of the law. There is not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women, and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. This is God's word. Well, for as long as I could remember, I've always felt that I was a a what's next kind of person. Now, maybe you are too. This is the kind of person always kind of looking forward to the next thing. What's the next thing that I need to do? It's hard for me to kind of rest and sit in the present, always thinking about the future and the next thing to do, to accomplish, things like that. Obviously, in my early years as a little boy, it was maybe birthdays and Christmases. That's what I looked forward to. When's the next birthday? When's the next Christmas? As a teenager, looking forward to 16. When I'm 16, that will be it. I'll get my driver's license. And then it's, well, when I'm 18, I become an adult. I can vote. And then 21, that's a big one, right? Drinking age, legal drinking age. And then 25, I can uh, rent a car. And uh, car insurance uh, is lowered. That's always a benefit. And then beyond that, it's like, I don't know, what do I look for? What do we look forward to now? I just uh, a good nap. You know, I look forward to bedtime, a good, well-balanced meal, fiber. I don't know. So what, what do we <laughs> always look at? What's next? What's the next thing that I, that I need in my life? And I was always focused on, on that and still like that in a lot of ways, for better or for worse. And I'm curious if God's people are starting to ask this question as well. What's next? Because for their whole life, they have been a people who have wandered in the desert. They have anticipated this next thing that God will bring to them to bless them, anticipating the promised land. They cross the Jordan River. They're brought into the land that God had promised to them and to their fathers before them. And they encounter challenge after challenge after challenge. They have encountered enemy after enemy standing in their way between uh, themselves and the land that God promised them and the blessing that will be for them and their people adversaries of all different kinds. They have conquered Jericho. They have taken AI. And now they're 20 miles away from this city just to encounter another city, that another challenge, another adversary before them. And I wonder if they're starting to think, well, what's next? Uh, what battle do we need to fight? What do we need to prepare for? They must be imagining they are primarily a people that just fight a people that just encounter one challenge to the next and need 
trust God in that. They fight battles. They encounter enemies. They advance God's kingdom on earth. They had victory at Jericho, disappointed at Ai, eventually took the city, and now they're moving on. Who's their next adversary? Who is their next challenge? What city do they need to face off with? And this is where our story pauses quite abruptly. We're not told what's next as far as what adversary to encounter, what challenge is before them. It's a weird placement of this part of the story at the end of chapter 8, where in the midst of all of these military conquests, there is this awkward pause because Joshua knows what's next. He knows the script. And what's next for the people of God is to be a people primarily who are people who worship God. I imagine that God's people are starting to think maybe we're a people meant to fight. We're a people that are meant to overcome and to conquer and have military victory. But they are first before any of those things. They are to remember that God's people are a people who worship. No matter what they would accomplish in life, no matter what earthly successes they would have, no matter what political or social or cultural or economic successes that Israel will enjoy in their life, God wants to make clear to them that they are primarily a people who worship. This is made so clear because even at, their, at the battle of Ai, when they did not worship God and did not obey his commands, they were defeated in that city. They were defeated in that battle. If God was primarily concerned that they would just be a people of victory, he would have found by any means possible for them to have success in that battle. But what was more concerned to God was that his people would be a people who worshiped him. And so are we. We are made and created to be a people who worship We as God's people who worship the same God of Joshua and the Israelites, we worship God and we are meant to be a people who worship. And our worship becomes for us then an anchor, an anchor in life when things are unstable. An anchor in our life when we encounter times of difficulty and confusion or things don't go the way that we had desired or planned. Our worship becomes comfort in times of distress and sorrow. Our worship becomes endurance to us in times of just long waiting and being patient and waiting on God to act. Consider, have you ever wondered to yourself, what's next? What do I do now? And often when we're thinking about that, we're thinking, well, what do I need to accomplish? What success do I need to achieve? What action do I need to take in order to keep the ball rolling? in the right direction that you have called me. And that is where this story just plants down and everything is just kind of screeches to a halt and says, remember, before anything that you do, you are a people who worship. And so turning our attention in humble reliance upon God and praise for who he is, what he has done, is one of the best ways to anchor our life in the midst of a tumultuous and shaky world. In the midst of our circumstances, if you're wondering, what do I do? We are to be reminded that we are people who primarily worship. And everything comes from that. And it's not until we remember that, that God then re-engages in his active uh, involvement in our life to accomplish his plans. He is fine being patient with us. He is fine to, to discipline us and correct us. 
until we confess our sins, repent of sins, and say, okay, God, I need to depend on you again. I need to worship you. And then he accomplishes his purposes in us. I want to look at what the worship of God here in this passage, because this is, this is a worship service. That is what's happening in these five, six verses. God's people pause after uh, accomplishing a great victory over Ai, and before, and now they're 20 miles north and encountering another city, and they just pause and they worship. We want to look at this worship service, what it teaches us about about what it about who we are as his people and how we are to be worshipers. Look at first at verse 30 as it starts here. Just look again there, a simple introduction to this scene, but one that is so profound if you can see it. Joshua builds an altar to the Lord. He builds an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. Here's the funny thing, we know we know who Joshua built an altar to. We, we don't need this clarification. We don't need to have this redundant clarification of who that God is. When, it, when Joshua tells us that he builds an altar to the Lord, to Yahweh, and then he says the God of Israel, he is proving a point here. He is proving a, a point of this relationship, this special relationship that God has with his people. The first part of, of what this worship reveals is that there is a special and real relationship with God that can be yours. Joshua built an altar to the Lord, to Yahweh, this personal name of God, to the God of creation. We are told that Yahweh, the God of all of creation, that he can measure the universe with the span of his hand. And he gives us this word picture, like the span between his pinky and his thumb. Can he can measure the whole universe with that? We are told that all of the oceans and rivers and seas and streams and ponds and lakes and brooks and all the water of all of the universe could pool in the palm of his hand. That is Yahweh. That's the God of, of all that there is. The one who can gather it all. The one who's perfect in holiness and justice. The one who is righteous in all of his ways. The, the God who is unlike anyone else, that there is no equal. Joshua is saying this isn't just a God who is far off, but he is the God of Israel. He is our God. And so he's recognizing that he, he is worshiping the God of creation who is deserving worship, but he's also worshiping a God that is so real, so personal, so relational, that this God of all of creation has chosen to, to love Israel, to be with them, to remember them, to be in their midst. And so as Joshua approaches God in worship and and creates this altar of praise to him, he is not just praising and worshiping a God who's far off, but one who has been drawn near, one who dwells with them. We are told that God has manifested himself, his presence in pillars of smoke and flames of fire among God's people. As they wandered through the desert, he would travel with the Israelites as his presence hovered over the Ark of the Covenant. Wherever the Ark went, this is where the presence and power of God was. He would dwell in the tabernacle where Moses would would go and visit with God. God is with them, and this is such a beautiful privilege. It is such a special relationship. There's something that we remember when we encounter difficulty in our life 
and we pause in order to worship God, what should come to mind is that there is a God who created all, who is sovereign over all, but he is not a God who is distant and merely just transcendent and out of reach, but he is a God who's personal. He is Yahweh, but he is your God. Do you approach God like that, with that mentality, with that awareness, that as you go to pray to him and seek his face and to seek his mercy, and to enjoy him, that you have this special and personal relationship with the God of creation. This is something that we can remember in times of difficulty. That with his presence comes friendship and peace. How is this possible that the God of that Yahweh, the God of creation, can be brought near so much so that Joshua can say, This isn't just God of all, but He's our God. He's my God. He is your God. And one who desires this relationship with us. Well, the sacrifices here that he offers resemble the kind of relationship that they can have and the and how this relationship is even possible. He has two offerings: the burnt offering and then the peace offering. And these are significant. The burnt offering was this special kind of sacrifice that was uh, made of an, uh, of an unblemished animal to be completely burned up. This animal was unblemished and it was perfect and it was offered to God through fire and it was completely burned up. None of it was meant to be eaten or enjoyed by others. It was just meant for God. And we are told that as the smoke went up, into the heavens, it reaches the nostrils of God and it is pleasing to him. And so what this is, is this this offering that satisfies God's judgment for sinful humanity. It becomes a fragrant offering, something that blesses God and something that he receives as an offering on behalf of their sins. And, And the priests who offered this sacrifice were given very special instruction for how to offer this animal. They were, met, they were told to place their hand on the head of the animal and to keep the hand on the head of the animal as the throat was cut and blood was drained from the animal. And they were to keep their hand on this animal's head until the life left this animal. Because this hand was not just only to uh, confine the animal to receive this judgment, but it was symbolic of the hand of judgment that was on sinful humanity that was now instead placed upon this sacrifice. This hand of judgment is no longer on sinful humanity, but it is placed upon this animal that is then sacrificed to God, and God receives that offering in such a way that it satisfies the punishment that was meant to be on God's people, but is now transferred to this animal. And the priests were instructed, don't lift your hand, Don't release that judgment, but hold that judgment on that animal until its life is given. His hand served as a symbol of judgment, and so this burnt offering would establish righteousness. It would atone for the sins of God's people. And then there was, after that, there was was the peace offering. The peace offering wasn't entirely burnt up. This was very different. Instead of this offering to God of a complete burnt offering, it was uh, parts of the animal, the best parts, the fatty parts, the yummy parts were actually not burnt up, but actually cooked and then eaten 
by the priests and enjoyed. And, and these were succulent pieces. I mean, this was like 24-hour smoked brisket. And this was just enjoyed. It was the best parts of the animal. And instead of saying, hey, this isn't yours. This is only God's. God said, no, this is actually for you to enjoy. And this was meant to symbolize that once forgiveness of sins has been taken, once the demand for judgment and righteousness has been given, what remains is peace and friendship and celebration. Where there is no judgment, there is the friendship of God. And because this judgment has been placed upon this offering, and you have faith in that this offering is satisfying your, God's demand for, for sin, what remains now is just a relationship of peace and friendship with God. Enjoy that. Celebrate that. And the people were meant to eat of this food. And worship is meant to remind us of these two things. When we worship God, we are reminded that there is a, there is a demand for, for justice, a demand for payment of our sin, and a celebration of in the enjoyment of God's friendship that comes through this sacrifice. There can be no peace unless our sins have been paid for. But once sins have been paid for, friendship of God remains. Peace remains. I'm a little out of season on this, but in the movie Independence Day uh, with Will Smith and Bill Pullman, you know, Bill Pullman is the actor playing the president of the United States. He has a conversation with this alien, right, that's been captured. And this is a, a force. This is an otherworldly entity that has come to kill and destroy Earth and all of its inhabitants. And Bill Pullman has this conversation with the alien that's been in captivity. Far more advanced life form, far more advanced in technology and weaponry. And the president says this. He says, can we find a way to coexist? Can there be peace between us? And the alien says, peace, no peace. And then Bill Pullman says, what do you want us to do? And the alien says, die. And then the humans remember they have guns and then they kill all the aliens. <clears throat> but before that, right, there's this, there's this conflict. There's this, this is what happens. There is this formidable force, right? And I think we can, we can often approach God in this way. We, we know that God is holy. We know that he is he's Yahweh. He is God of the universe. He, he, command, he demands righteousness and he demands obedience. And we recognize our own failure to obey God. And we can approach God and say, can, there, can we coexist? Can there be peace between us? I recognize that you're, you are who you say that you are, but I've made mistakes and, and, I, and you are forgiving God. Can we have an arrangement, an agreement where I try my best, I sometimes fall short, but I always get back up again. Can we just have this arrangement? Can there be a coexistence between us? And because God is a holy God and a righteous God, and because we are sinful humanity, there simply cannot be peace between a holy God and sinful humanity unless the demand for righteousness can be met. Unless that problem of, of this relationship that just does not work can be reconciled. 
And in Israel's case, it is reconciled through this burnt offering. It is reconciled by the hand of judgment being taken off of God's people and placed on this animal. So that when the judgment for sin is met, what remains is peace and friendship. And the burnt offering alone for God's people can atone for the sins of God's people. This word atone, but more literally, you know, atone means more literally to, to lift your hand. And when we understand the requirement and instructions given to the priest to make this sacrifice, it's quite beautiful. What God is saying through the substitute of his son on the cross for our sins, what God is doing is that he's taking his hand of judgment that was once placed upon us because of our sin, and he is lifting his hand in mercy. And he's placing his hand of judgment on his son on the cross. Who was perfect, who was sinless, who was that spotless and unblemished sacrifice. Jesus becomes that offering on the cross for the sins of his people. When, when Jesus atones for our sins, what that means is he doesn't just simply forgive us. He doesn't just simply say, you know what, let's coexist here. Let's, I, I want to forgive you. I want a relationship with you. There's something more dramatic happening. God is taking his hand and he's lifting it off of our heads. And he's placing it on his son. So that because of Jesus' righteousness, because of his perfect atonement that satisfies that need for judgment, where there is no longer any judgment, there remains friendship and peace. This makes Isaiah 53, 6 all the more beautiful as it speaks of God's future Savior and Messiah that would come into the world All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He takes the hand of judgment. He places it on Christ. Our sin, our guilt, our iniquity, all of our transgressions are placed upon the altar of Calvary on the cross and this altar is where his son is sacrificed in our place and it becomes a fragrant offering to God, a sacrifice that is satisfying This is what worship is. It is enjoying, it is celebrating the friendship that we have with God because the judgment has been removed from us and it's been placed on Jesus. Worship isn't just going through the motions and saying great things to God. It is celebrating and enjoying the the identity that we have as God's people called his friends his people that have received his peace. Worship is to trust in God's provision and to rest in his promises. And God's people here are celebrating. They are eating. They are offering to God. They are cooking this peace offering. They are eating it and enjoying it. There is a party happening here in this valley, but not just this party and celebration. We also see that there is this somber remembrance a somber remembrance because when we worship God, we don't just remember what he has done for us that makes our heart glad. We, have to, we remember too that we have been saved for obedience, not from obedience. What does that mean? It means that God did not save his people and bless his people so that they can just go and live any way that they wanted. 
but rather their salvation was necessary in order for them to truly live the lives that he was calling them into. And this new life of freedom could only be enjoyed through obedience to God's law. And they had, just like these offerings in place, they had another very visual ceremony to demonstrate the reality that there are two ways to live. We can live God's way or we can live our way. And all of God's people here, they stood, and he tells us here what they were commanded to do. Moses told them, when you, you're going to go into this land, and there's going to be two mountains, and here's what you're going to do. When you cross the Jordan, I want you to go into this valley. And on one side, you're going to have Mount Ebal, and on the other side, you're going to have Mount Gerizim. And this is what they do. They take the Ark of the Covenant, and they put it in the middle of the valley, and the priests surround the valley. The, the Ark of the Covenant. And then on both sides, the people of God split up into two halves. One people are going to face Mount Ebal. And Mount Ebal is just, it is rocky, right? We're told that it's filled with uncut stones, never touched by any human tool. It's, it's, it's just rugged. It is jagged. It is lifeless. And this is actually the geography of the time. This is what it looked like. There's, there's, there's nothing that is living there. It is barren. It is desolate. And it is lifeless. And half of the people are to, to look upon this mountain and to see a place that is void of any blessing. And then the other half are meant to look at the other mountain, face the other mountain, Mount Gerizim. And this was lush with vegetation. It had trees and grass and a beautiful wilderness full of life. And as these two halves are looking at these contrasting realities, the law of God was read with the blessings and curses. And as the curses were read, they were meant to look upon the mountain that was barren and lifeless and say, follow God's word. And if you don't, your life will be like this. Your life will be void of joy. It will be void of life. It'll be barren. It'll be rugged. It'll be jagged. And then the blessings of obedience are read and the people are meant to look upon the mountain that was lush and full of life. And God's people would be told, choose life. Choose this path that leads to life. Remember, there are two ways to live. One leads to life, the other leads to death. And they have here in their new home an entire geography that is meant to remind them of this reality. That following God's word is an invitation into life. It is an invitation into joy. I recently went up to the Rocky Mountains just a few weeks ago and traveled up to about 12,000 feet up to the the wild tundra up there. And I had no idea that this is the way the mountain uh, looked. I mean, up on 12,000 feet, you get to this point and it is just barren. It is lifeless. Nothing grows above just a couple inches and, and what is growing is, is brown and, and gray and lacks any fruit. And this was an area of the mountain just completely lifeless. The, the winds get up to like hurricane strength winds of over 100 miles an hour. The winters are, are brutal. There is uh, no precipitation. It's just solid ice that comes through at 100 miles an hour, destroying anything that is living. It it cuts the landscape and changes the ground. Uh, it is like stones that are just ripping through the tundra. Nothing lives up there. You won't see anything alive, not even insects. And it is just a desolate place. But if you go a thousand feet lower, this is you will see what you might imagine the Rocky Mountains looking like. 
a landscape brimming with life and beautiful wilderness, lakes that are full of fish and bears and deer and all kinds of wildlife. And when I traveled just a thousand miles lower, I saw hundreds of elk within just a couple square miles. Talking about, talk about blessing and curses and a geography that just demonstrates the sheer contrast of a wilderness full of life and fruit and a wilderness that is just dead and desolate. And God's people are reading his word and reading an invitation to obey God's commands and look upon this landscape and are told, choose life, choose God. And it might sound like at times like this is like a works-based righteousness that our salvation comes from, from obeying God's word and doing as he says. But consider this, would it be reasonable to think this, you know, if one of my children were ran through the front door and were running out onto a, a busy intersection on the street without any care in the world and I yell out to them with great despair, stop or you will die. Would it be reasonable for one of my children to, to turn back and, and, and to remark to me, say, well, now that's just works-based righteousness. <laughs> well, now you're just always focused on good behavior. Whatever happened to the grace that you promised, whatever happened to the grace of God? Well, that sounds silly, right? This isn't works-based righteousness. This is choosing life over death. This is choosing wisdom over folly. It's choosing discipline over self-indulgence. Works-based righteousness would tell a person after they have wandered onto the busy street in disobedience, having been hit by a car and lay in the street dying and dead, to tell them, just get up and do the right thing now. The works-based righteousness would say to a person who has already transgressed and is already incapable of doing any good, saying, just get up and do better. But what that person needs in that moment is rescue. What they need is revitalization. What they need is renewal. What they need is new life. That comes from the rescue of God. And that person is then rescued and brought into a new relationship with God where they're given the law of God. They're given the commands of God and are told, choose life, not in order to be saved, but because you have been saved. Choose wisdom over foolishness. Choose life over death. And now these, these newly rescued people of God are celebrating and Joshua is telling them, since you have been saved, since you have been rescued, choose life, not death. Choose wisdom, not folly. Choose correction and discipline, not self-indulgence. Because God's commands are an invitation into life. And it is to this final point that this worship ceremony speaks, and that is that worship teaches us how to be totally dependent upon grace. I'm going to make a, a blanket statement for us, but I'm confident that this is going to apply. This is going to apply to all of us. We are, by nature, every single one of us, works-based salvationists at our core. And the last thing that our sinful, self-righteous hearts want to do is cast ourselves on God's mercy and be totally dependent upon him. The last thing that our works-based 
hearts really want is to say, God, I am completely dependent upon you. And our end of our passage makes this abundantly clear. Everyone is here to hear the word of God. We are told five different times we are told all, we, that word all is used. The whole word of God was read for all the people who, and then it's itemized who is there, all adults, all soldiers, all priests and scholars and doctors and, and educators and children and sojourners and women and the little ones. I mean, even people that were not part of the, of the, Israeli, uh, the Israelite people who just wandered upon this large crowd of people wandering through the desert and said, hey, can we follow you guys around for a while? Even they were there, the strangers and sojourners who had become a part of their group. And they all had one thing in common. They were very different, but they had one thing in common. Every single one of them had crossed the Jordan River together. Every single one of them were rescued and brought into this new life. And when God's word is read, his requirements are read out loud. And when that happens, the playing field is leveled the playing field is leveled. It doesn't matter if you're a kid. It doesn't matter if you're an adult. It doesn't matter if you've been walking with God's people for 40 years. It doesn't matter if you were a priest among God's people or if you are a toddler being carried on your mother's back. They all needed the exact same thing. There was no one who measures up more than another person when it comes to the law of God. You see, when they were fighting their enemies, Joshua picked 30,000 really strong men who were trained in battle to go out. When the word of God is read, Joshua doesn't go and get all the really smart, all the really intelligent. He doesn't say, okay, who are my A-plus students who are really going to follow God? He doesn't do that. He says, this is for everyone. Every person, every adult and scholar and child and stranger has the same need. That is the mercy and grace of God. God's commands are not given as a means of salvation to the ones who can accomplish it on their own. God's commands are given as a means of grace for those who are already rescued. You see, crossing the Jordan River launched God's people on a path that would remind them of God's mercy and would reaffirm them of their total dependency upon him. And for people who are constantly focused on what's next, what am I supposed to do now? Worship can often feel like, like an interruption in your day. If you are distressed, if you are struggling, if you are in sorrow, or if you're stuck at a crossroads and you need to make a decision quickly, and you are told to pause and to worship God, you will feel like that is a disturbance in your day. You will feel like that pace of life is so disruptive and so fruitless because you got to get working. You got to do something because you have too much to do. You want to be self-sufficient and to slow down and to reflect on what God has done for you seems like a waste of time. And here are God's people from one military conquest to the next and the best next thing to do for them is not to strategize, not to train, but it is to worship God. Because I think we've fallen into this trap that says that we are made to accomplish rather than to worship. 
we fall into this trap that says that we have been saved by God in order to accumulate characteristics and character traits or to be, on a, to, to be mature in a certain way within a certain timeline where we were reminded we were saved in order to worship, saved in order to enjoy. And there's only one person who could ever accomplish enough in order to earn God's favor, and that was Jesus Christ. And on the cross, Jesus Christ takes the hand of judgment and he lifts that hand of judgment and he places it upon himself so that we would not just be released from that judgment and be given mercy, but now that we would be given the hand of friendship. Where there is no judgment, do you realize that the hand that you feel from God on your back is not a heavy hand of condemnation. It is not a heavy hand of judgment and scorn. The hand that you feel from God is a hand of friendship and peace. Because where there is no judgment, there is friendship and peace. And that can only happen if that hand of God's judgment is taken off of us and put on somebody else that can take our place. And that is exactly what Jesus did. Where there is no judgment, there is friendship. And we are saved not to do whatever we want. We are saved to walk in fullness of life, to walk in obedience, to choose wisdom, choose life, to choose discipline when we need it, to walk more fully in God's mercy. I don't know what you need to do this week. I don't know what you are feeling today, what burdens you're carrying, but I, I do know that you're likely feeling at some time very soon, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what's next. I feel stuck. And you're looking for some spiritual activity often to just kind of catapult you into a life that you it feels a little bit more accomplished and desirable and peaceful. And I want you to think, is, is this next step reliant on you becoming a better person? Or is it reliant on embracing more of God's grace and mercy for you. The best next thing that you and I can do in the midst of trouble in our life is not to white-knuckle it, is not to grip tighter and to try harder, but to pause and to worship God. To be reminded of who he is and what he has done, to be reminded of the punishment that has been transferred from our hearts onto Jesus, to celebrate that, to seek his favor and his pleasure, to enjoy his peace that has been given to us, to read his commands and to walk joyfully in them. This is where he wants us to be. And that's where we will find our peace. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.